0: Romans 8, we've begun to move in here to this new section where Paul is speaking less about the struggle and more about the reality of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, talking about our sanctification, speaking then of our struggle and how we realize even after our salvation, we still need to put that old man To death, we need to see ourselves, reckon ourselves dead to sin, consider ourselves, identify ourselves with the work of Christ, and that there's a struggle in that that's real. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us, and because of that, there's no condemnation, that imperfect men and women can now walk with the perfect God because of what he's done on our behalf. And we don't have to live in the flesh or set our minds in the flesh. We can walk in God and in this new spirit, which is a new law, which transcends the law of sin in our lives. So continuing in that vein, he says in 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So Paul gives us a little summary and transition to other really wonderful aspects of our sanctification. But first he wants to make it clear, we're not debtors to the flesh. Okay, you've been set free from these things. There's no condemnation in Christ. We don't owe the flesh anything. Yes, we still live in our human bodies. Our, our human body is not yet made like his glorious body. Yes, the Bible acknowledges that you should take care of your physical body and there are certain things that you have need of. Jesus acknowledges that. We're supposed to pray for our daily bread. We ask him to lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. There's, there's practical things that we need in life And God knows that. And all of those things are okay. Uh, I love when Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. He tells them, get her something to eat. Like If we were there in that scene and we saw somebody resurrected from the dead, the last thing we would think is, we need a sandwich right now. But because Jesus is who he is, fully divine, also fully human, he can, he understands everything. And he raises somebody from the dead, get this girl something to eat. So, he understands the practicalities of our flesh and our needs here. But what, what he's saying is the flesh is no longer captain of the ship. The, the directing force is now the Holy Spirit in our lives. This new law of the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not to be ruled by the flesh or just the desires of our flesh. They are not what directs us, what rules our lives. We are able to live life in the spirit and not death in the flesh. If I just live in the flesh, according to the flesh, he says, you will die. That's all I have. Human beings are more than just their sexual desires or their hunger or their thirst or their desire for entertainment. If that's all we are, then we're animals. But what he says is, no, If that's all you have, you're just going to die. The fruit of it is death. He's already gone through it. It's all. The end of it is death. But if by the Spirit, because there's no other way to not live just only in the flesh, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's a new life that we have now. And how do we do that? Paul clearly tells us. 13 by the spirit and 14 led by the spirit so living in the spirit led by the spirit is the way that we don't just commit ourselves to fully living in the flesh 24 7 and it's it's again being led by the spirit is more than just receiving guidance as to where to go next like the holy spirit is an arrow saying that direction or something there's part of that that would be nice i think Every single person that's read the Bible and read about the pillar of cloud and fire has thought, I, I kind of wish that would happen to me. And it seems like they, they had it better where you could just wake up in the morning, pop your head out of the tent and see the, where we're going. We're like, okay, we got to go this way. That just seems a lot easier. And it would be nice if we woke up in the morning, and a little right, cloud was there and just floated out your door and you had to go that way. You didn't have to worry, am I where I'm supposed to be? Um, And I get there's a part of that, but that is just guidance, per se, because the reality is, even though those Old Testament Israelites knew where they were supposed to go, they didn't leave their flesh behind. That's the whole point of the story in the time in the wilderness. They were where God wanted them to be, and then they complained and blasphemed him and didn't go where he had unbelief. They... They were still living fleshly lives where they were supposed to be. It was a bad scenario. You and I are not in a worse scenario. They didn't have it better than us. You're in a better scenario because you have the Holy Spirit, which means wherever he leads you, not only guides you, but he leads you into Christ-likeness. He is making you into something. The image of Christ, which he's going to get to here eventually, but it wouldn't benefit us at all if we knew the direction of God's will for our life, but we had no power to live it out. And what he's saying here is this new law in leading, it's a better, it's a leading into the life of God, into literally the divine nature. Again, it means Christ lives in me, and if Christ lives in me, then he is Lord, That means now there's also a new authority in my life. And that authority has the right to lead me day in and day out in everything related to my personal and public life. They don't get separated. And again, we are being led. He is not being led. We're being led. He's doing the leading. And I think part of the problem is we want to typically orchestrate our own spiritual growth. We, we want to hand in the process as to how this goes. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says, I put to death the deeds of the flesh, not by having a, a powwow with God and saying, God, let's work our budget here. You know, I think I want this. And maybe there's a little give and take between us. It's No, okay, my life is yours. What's next? And he doesn't just want you to go somewhere. The reality actually is most of us, God doesn't want us to go anywhere at all. He's trying to conform us into his image and likeness right where we are because he wants you to learn to serve him right where you are. Sometimes God calls people literally geographic places. But the reality is for most people, you are where you are on purpose. He wants you to be salt and light right there. And the leading of the Holy Spirit is more like, read your Bible today. Go talk to this person. A, a building of spiritual graces. If, if I'm actually led by the Spirit, he leads, me, he leads me to spiritual experiences, spiritual warfare, gifts, service, revelation in him, new understanding of who he is evangelism, self-denial, deeper faith. Even when we make mistakes, the Holy Spirit leads us. He leads us to confession, to repentance. He, He leads every single person that he's actually in. And he is leading you right now, today. Now, we can get caught up and start to mind the things of the flesh, We can resist him. We can grieve him. We could try not to listen to him. But the reality is, if I allow myself to be led by the Spirit, if I don't try to take the reins and I allow him to orchestrate my life in simple obedience, whether that's public or personal, and when I say public or personal, I just mean public is the things he tells every Christian to do, and personal is the things he's telling You to do specifically. He tells every Christian to be a witness, but he might be telling you to be a particular type of witness to a particular person. Does that make sense? Right? So he's leading all of us. Well, if I follow those things, then he is going to lead me to a type of life that isn't life in the flesh, it's life in the spirit. And I will not then walk in the flesh. It's going to be a Christian life, a mature Christian life. And the issue is, even with those, again, who love God, is that we try to choose the path to be led. God, you know, I know you might be telling me to serve in your high ministry, but I was thinking, if you let me win the lottery, when I get that billion dollars, I can serve you in a... And God might know, actually, you just destroy your life and everybody you know, so you're never going to win that. So that's why he's leading you to go serve somewhere else, right? We, we have these plans where we want to, I'm, I'm not doing something totally sinful, right? We love God. It's still something Christian, but we kind of want to direct the things. And we still find ourselves in trouble. If I really am being led by the Spirit, you know, there's going to be times where my flesh won't like it where we're going to come into conflict. Fortunately, God loves us enough to not leave us alone. He is going to be involved in our lives and to be led by the Spirit is a lifelong process. It never ends because it's walking with God. And I'm never supposed to stop walking with God. It's the whole way into eternity. So I, if I'm, not a debtor to the flesh. I don't have to live in the flesh. I can, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body and live in him. For, he says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The the whole reason this process takes place is because we are actually children of God. If we weren't, this wouldn't be happening. You would have no leading in your life from the Holy Spirit. And he's going to transition here to a new kind of focus, but the, the idea is that the sons of God, that's a, a word for a son or a daughter that's come of age. You're, you're recognized with a certain type of identity and dignity in him. You're a son or daughter of God is the idea. In Leviticus 18... In the Old Testament, when God's talking to his people, particularly about sexual sin. But what he's saying is you're going to go into this land. And when you go into the land of the Canaanites, I don't want you to live like they are living or worship the gods that they are worshiping. And multiple times in the chapter, he says this, because I'm the Lord, your God. Keep my commandments. Do the things I ask you to do and you will live by them because I am the Lord, your God. Don't look on a person's nakedness. Don't step into adultery. Don't commit incest. Don't commit homosexual sin. Don't commit bestiality. Don't offer your children to idols. All the nations around you do these things, but don't do them because I'm the Lord your God. I'm not like that. That's not who I am. The other gods are like that. They might be okay with those things. They might, in fact, ask for those things. But the reason you don't do them is because I'm the Lord your God. And I believe Paul is picking this up here. The same idea, he would speak to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6. We probably are familiar with the verses about unequally yoked. Being unequally yoked, but I'd like to, if if you allow me, read them in this context of a family type of connection. He says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same I speak as to children. You also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. You shall be my sons and my daughters, says the Lord Almighty. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They're his sons and daughters. What God is saying is, I didn't give you my Holy Spirit so you could be a debtor to the flesh. It's like he's grabbing our face and saying, you're my son you're my daughter there's an identity there and there's a type of life those things they don't represent me and i didn't save you to live like that as parents at least i hope this is true of you we've all had the conversation where your kids say the other parents allow them to I don't care what the other parents do. You're not their kid. You're my child. And that is not reflective of me and this household. God is saying, you're my sons and daughters. I've given you my spirit. if you have my spirit, you'll be led by my spirit. You'll be my sons. You'll be my daughters. There's a claim. He is claiming us. And there's a character, though, behind that claim. Our God is like something. I don't just believe that God exists. I believe that our God exists. The God of the Bible. The God who says, I'm not like those other gods. That's why I want you to keep my commandments. What? Why do we care? Because I'm the Lord your God. That's why. Because you're my son and you're my daughter. So come out from among them, says the Lord. I will be a father to you. That's his heart here. And the, the believers in Rome, Paul wants them to understand what God's heart for them is. And that there's a pretty incredible thing that's happened that they're now sons and daughters of the Almighty God. So he transitions, 15, to that idea, which again still relates to sanctification in that regard. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The, the idea here is the spirit of God in us, again, looks like something. His work is not random. There's something off if we don't see and experience him in the right way. So when Paul wants to talk about the spirit, he begins by talking about the spirit. Notice, we did not receive to help us more clearly see the spirit that we have received. So Paul will do this numerous times. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world... But the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. 2 Timothy 1.7, he'll say, For God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The spirit of God in us is not one of bondage and fear. If I find myself in bondage and fear in relation to the Lord, that's not from God. It's a familial relation that he's given us that's what his spirit is like that draws near to him and says abba father the work of the spirit in our lives the leading of the spirit in our lives is not something that causes us to fear god or be in some type of bondage in relationship to him if if my relationship to god is bondage and fear then i probably don't have the holy spirit because that's not what his spirit is like When Adam was in the garden and he sinned, he hid himself. He was in fear. When we are born again, the Bible says we talk like kids to God. We say, Abba, Father. There's a new type of spirit in our lives. We need to beware. There are certainly people out there that would present God to us in a way that would cause us to fear him or be in bondage. There are plenty of cults out there, very legalistic sects. There are people that will talk about Jesus Christ in a way that is skewed. That's different. But the real spirit of God that we did receive, saying, not, not that spirit of God, that's not from him. But the spirit of God we did receive, that's going to make you cry out, Abba, Father. There's there's a unique family relationship now. What kind of spirit is it? He says, it's the spirit of adoption, the spirit of sonship. Paul takes it for granted that Gentile Christians understand that language, Abba, Father. They would know that. It would be familiar to them. Galatians 4, he would say the same thing. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There are unseen works of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Certain things he does in us and develops in us that, that are hard to see and hard to notice. This is not one of them. This is something that's supposed to be clear, as simple as a child's first words as intuitive as a kid knowing who their parent actually is. He's saying that's the spirit that's from God. If, if you're in fear and in bondage, that's not from him. That's not the spirit of adoption. God would have this witness known and lived in by his children. God wants his children to live in this type of family atmosphere. He didn't leave the world. He said to leave us orphans. That was Jesus' promise. I'm going to send you the Spirit. I'm not going to leave you orphans. He knew that when the Spirit dwells in us, that we're led by the Spirit, and then it's the Spirit of adoption that we'll look to God and say, Abba, Father. This was Christ's very teaching and example. Jesus showed us something unique that wasn't there in the Old Testament. We didn't see this type of relationship. John 1 tells us he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him to, him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Wasn't anything physical. Wasn't a will of man, wasn't anybody's effort, wasn't of blood. It was spiritual and he says they have the authority to be children of God it was Jesus again God's own son his own son who taught us to pray our father who are in heaven he said when you pray pray to your father who is in the secret place and your father who hears will reward you openly he said when he was resurrected to Mary, go tell my brethren, the disciples, and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And those Moses never linked those two together. He didn't call God father. Elijah didn't call God father. The Old Testament saints didn't have this unique relationship. In fact, the only one who could reveal this to us is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who could show this truth to us. He says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. He says, I'm the one that teaches you everything about the Father. And you can't learn anything about the Father unless I reveal that to you. And one of the things he reveals is that he's a father and that we can be his children. And he says he's given us his spirit, the spirit of adoption, so that his sons and daughters can know that they are his sons and daughters. This is a father-taught lesson, not a man-taught lesson. I cannot teach you this. I can only point it out to you. God is the one who teaches individuals these things. It's an amazing thing that Jesus has revealed. It's true that Jesus alone is the only eternal, only begotten Son of God. But we become adopted sons and daughters of God, He's the only one who was there from the beginning but we get brought into that family relationship that was there before the world began. You and I are drawn into something, like like a child that's adopted is brought into a type of family life. Sadly, here in this world, sometimes that's wonderful, sometimes it's terrible. there are people who take advantage of, whether it's the foster system or adoption system, people can be brought into Families that don't really care about them. Or you could be brought into a loving home. But when you're adopted into a family, you receive, you get brought into a type of family life and relationship. When we were adopted, we were adopted into a type of family life and relationship that had been there before the world began. If you'll allow me to, in that context, if I can just read to you. Some verses from John 17. Just listen. I think Jesus' heart is clear in what he wants us to be brought into. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us. That The world may believe you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know you have sent me and I've loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, For you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name, and I will declare it, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. You understand Jesus is trying to bring us into something. That the love that he and the Father shared be something that he would share with us it's more than anybody could really explain we're more than God's creation now we're his children there are some people that are still just God's creation but if you have His spirit you've been adopted and by new birth you've been brought into a new family relationship the family relationship that started with the father and the son. We could struggle with our human family. Following Christ might even drive a wedge in between us and the human family. Jesus said that. I came not to bring peace, but a sword. A man's enemy will be those of his own household. But if you love others more than me, you're not worthy of me, he would say. There's, there's a reality where even earthly family at best is just a messed up picture of what he's trying to bring us into. And when he says that we've received the spirit of adoption, that dim family picture is just an ultimate picture of what God is really trying to get us to. The perfect family in heaven. And we praise him that he's made us a part of it. Paul would say to the Ephesians, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That's what the real family is. And the prospect for the person who's adopted into the family of God is eternity, eternal life. J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God said, Simply the prospect before the adopted child of God is an eternity of love. You got adopted into the right place, into the right family. Now, like everybody, right, some things about family might annoy you. Get brought into a family, you learn some new rules, but he's the perfect father. He's going to run his household the way he wants. It's perfect. But you really wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So how does this happen in our lives? What does that even mean for us? Well, he says in 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How does this happen? Paul just says, I'll tell you how it happens. The Holy Spirit saves a person, and then he tells you you're God's kid. That's how it happens. You're like, I need more of an explanation. Well, guess what? Paul doesn't give an explanation. He gives a declaration. He doesn't, he doesn't trace it all out. He just says, here's how it happens. Supernaturally, the Holy Spirit himself comes into your life and he communicates to you that you are a child of God. It is a mystery how the Holy Spirit communicates with a human spirit, but it's a mysterious fact It's a Bible doctrine, which just means a basic Bible teaching. It is a basic Bible teaching that those who are saved are told they're children of God by the Holy Spirit inside of them. It's simply something that God does. Now, there are people out there I know who would claim that we can't know if we're saved, It would say that, in fact, it's presumption at best, pride at worst, to claim confidently that you know you're saved, something so radical. But God says right here, God, the one who actually saves us, that we can and do know that we are the children of God. That that can be a fact. We do know it. And usually people who are claiming that you can't know your salvation Uh, have totally forgotten to consider that our salvation is based on something God has done for us, not that we've done for ourselves. And they focus on our own works and our trying to get to heaven ourselves, our legalistic type of works. Again, Ephesians 2, we know these verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, You notice the language again, simple in verse 16. It's the Spirit himself and our Spirit. The Holy Spirit and our Spirit are now come together, and there's nothing in between them. No veil to separate. Nothing getting in the way. And the Holy Spirit, the outcome of that, gives personal witness to the individual that they are a child of God. You don't have to know all the facts. Somebody can come around and try to convince you about things. But when God works in a person's life, they know it. I love that story. We just went through it in John 9, right? The man born blind. Jesus heals him. Pharisees are giving him a hard time. People don't recognize who he is. His own parents are like, I don't know. Let him talk for himself. They're saying over and over again, give somebody else the glory for it. He just says, look, one thing I know. Once I was blind, now I see. He was pretty confident. <laughs> Something's happened in my life, okay? I can give witness to that. The Holy Spirit witnesses to our spirit. If, you want, if you're interested in thinking about the assurance of salvation and what that looks like, you can read the book of 1 John. But John makes it clear that there's a personal spiritual witness that happens in people's lives. First John 2.13 says, I write to you fathers because you have known him who was from the beginning. I write to you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you little children because you have known the father. Sounds pretty definite. First John 3.24 says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him, and by this we know that he abides in us. By the Spirit whom he has given us. That's how do you know you're saved? By the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. First John 5.10 He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar. And because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. You're like, that doesn't work. You're not arguing me. This is what God says. He's the one who saves you. John says, are you going to make God a liar? No, you have this witness in yourself. So if God is real, in the end, this has to be true. Not just because he said it, but because if in the end I have to rely on something outside of God to know I'm a child of God, then that means I'm relying on human beings. If I need another person to convince me or some man-made argument If God Almighty can't convince me himself through his Holy Spirit that I'm his child, then we're left in a pretty difficult spot. Then he's not who he says he is. In the end, I actually have to believe that this is true, that the Spirit of God that is in a person who has new life can convince them that they're a child of God. Because if that can't happen then I'm left to man and there's nothing supernatural that we're hanging on. But it can happen and God says it is what happens. And I would just encourage you, maybe you're here and you feel like in some ways I have not yet received that witness of the Holy Spirit. I wish that I had it. Well then I would say two things to you. Number one, examine yourself see whether you're actually in the faith that's what paul says to the corinthians a church wow, why don't you see if you actually have spiritual life because it's more than just believing a doctrine it's having life if if you are saved and you just need this work in your life then just go to your father and say father I haven't received my portion of this promise yet. Can I please have it?" You know what? He's a good father. You promised this. It's in your word. Can you make this real in my life as a child of God? And because he's our father, I have no doubt that he will minister his grace to you if you're his kid. He knows we're all insecure in our own ways. We all need help. And he's gracious. And he wants us to have this, to live as children. Even if it makes us miserable because we're living in the flesh, he's still like, you're my kid. You're my kid. Go to him. Place yourself before him. Humbly ask him. And he'll work this in you because it's what he wants. The Spirit himself bears witness. We have this witness in ourselves, with our spirit, that we are children of God. That's what he wants us to be confident in. Not that we're perfect. Not that nothing difficult is ever going to happen in life. But that I am truly his child. That he is my Father, that I have claim on him and he has claim on me. The Holy Spirit will witness to that in my life. And Paul ties in now. He's going to build on that. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So Paul makes this clear. No sonship, no heirship. No adoption, no inheritance. But because I'm his son, I'm also his heir. Because I'm adopted into the family, I'm also part of the inheritance. We have both. Christ is the inheritor. What is he inheritor of? Everything. It's all his. And then he says, and you're co-heirs with Christ, which means you also get everything. God has a pretty big inheritance yet to be fully enjoyed, yet to be fully divided up. Nobody's going to have to fight over it. Some of us have been there there in the world, right? Sometimes, very sadly, things get really ugly around inheritance. But the reality is, for him, it's all good. It's all going to happen perfectly. Nobody's going to fight over anything. But he says, you are going to be an inheritor of everything that's his. And we inherit all things in him. All things. Not missing out on anything in this life. You don't have the house you want? You will one day with no large interest rates. Debt paid off. Don't have all the friends you're looking for, all the family you want? You will one day. You don't have the world you wish you wanted to live in, you will one day. As Satan tries to trick us to make us feel like this is the only chance we have in life to get certain things. And if this is the only life we have, well, then that is true. But it's not. You're a child of God, and therefore you're an heir of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And it's all his. And it's all his. And he says that's true, If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, the suffering that's mentioned here, I don't believe is to be seen proportional to the inheritance as much as to be seen relational to the inheritance. What I mean by that is this. Yes, there are rewards in heaven, and we'll get to that later in the book. Um, But the context here seems to be sharing his suffering Due to just living in this sinful world, because we share in his life, we will also share in his suffering. Jesus didn't have heaven on the way to heaven when he came here as a perfect individual. And some of us want heaven on the way to heaven, that's not what Jesus had. The wind was in his face here because of who he was. And now, that same life, that same spirit, he puts in us, and we get led just as he was led. And you know what happens. Satan doesn't like that, the world doesn't like that, and the flesh don't like that. And we find all that conflict in an imperfect world. The word for suffer here is only used one other time in Scripture. It's used in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, with the idea of one member of the body suffering, all the members suffering with it. So the idea is that of joint suffering, to suffer with. And we, in essence, suffer with Christ here in this purpose, in this plan. Paul knew what that was, and he knew all sons and daughters of God were going to face a measure of suffering in this life, if need be for a time. He would say to the Philippians, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Paul says, the Philippian church, they saw Paul. He started that church getting beaten and thrown in jail. He's like, you guys saw the conflict in my life. I was there led by the spirit trying to follow God. God did a miraculous thing, right? Earthquake in the prison, prison guard getting saved. Those had to be cool conversations. Right? He's writing this, this letter here and the guard's like, I, I hit him. I hit him. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Right? We, we already worked this out. He's got history there. It's pretty cool, actually. But Paul says, you saw that conflict in me. And the the example of their Christianity was a person who wants to follow God is going to face persecution, some hardship, some difficulty here in this world. And Paul is saying that in the same way, that's going to happen with us. Even though we're inheritors, we also suffer with him that we might be glorified together. There's a God is working a heart connection to his kingdom in us. In our suffering, there's a measure of gratification that we too share in this eternal kingdom that we're inheriting with him. That happens in anything in life, right? Every, Every single person here probably knew, particularly those of us who are a little bit older, a neighbor who cared a little too much about their lawn. And you want to know why? Because they put too much time and effort into taking care of their lawn. So because they suffered over it, they care about it a little too much, right? A little, quite a bit of gratification in regards to that lawn. So you couldn't walk on it or have a ball go there, right? You might die. Same thing with people's cars. Same thing with people's career. They begin to suffer for these things. They put in effort, time. And then, and then there's, a, there's a heart connection to that thing, sometimes way too much. Well, what, the same thing does happen in the Christian life. When a Christian begins to commit themselves to God's purpose, when they begin to suffer, to give, to invest in that purpose, there is a gratification that grows in terms of the inheritance. Jesus talks about it as if giving our treasure to heaven. Because it will also draw our hearts there. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The disciples were were told in the book of Acts that they agreed in Acts 5, 40 and 41. They agreed with them, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, listen, rejoicing they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And you can read that and you just go, they are happy. They got beat up. Why is anybody happy? Well, that's, of course that's not. They weren't happy that they were just happy to have pain. They were happy because they realized their suffering marked them as part of a bigger purpose. It linked them to their inheritance. And in essence, it's like we've already gone this far. Why do we go back now? And what Paul says here is, we're heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, because we do, we suffer jointly because we live in this same world that's fallen, and we have his life, and all those who wish to live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution on some level. We don't have to feel guilty about it, right? We have brothers and sisters around the world that are in places like North Korea, Somalia, places in Nigeria right now that they're being persecuted, literally put to death. But God knows for some reason he has us where he has us. But no matter where you are on the face of the earth, if you're a believer... If you begin to follow him, you are going to face some measure of suffering to do that. If you're going to be led by the Spirit as a son or daughter of God in your family, at your work, with your friends, in the country of America, you will face some measure of persecution. Even if it's just other believers who get annoyed because you're starting to commit yourself to the Lord and... They just want the status quo. Right? There, there is going to be some measure because that's the world we live in. But that suffering should link you to your inheritance. You should see it as what you've been called to. It's what Jesus went through. Paul says, it's what you saw in me to the Philippians. You saw this conflict. And when the disciples watched Jesus, innocent, murdered unjustly, but risen again in an immortal body, and then they got beaten for speaking in the name of Jesus, they rejoiced. Because we're getting tied to that. If you kill me, I know what I'm going to be like. We've seen him. And you and I, we need to shift our mindset some. And we need to understand that as children of God, yet yeah, we suffer with him, but we suffer that we may be glorified together. The suffering of life is acknowledged, but also the glory of the inheritance. That's what we leave out on the other side of the scale too often. They're acknowledged together. And Paul's going to get to it here in a minute, the one side of the scale weighs way more than the other side of the scale. And God always acknowledges both. And he tells us in Hebrews 3.1 that we're a holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. That's what you're a part of. That's what your inheritance is. That's what we've been called to. That's what we're supposed to live for. And if we allow ourselves to be led of the Spirit... We won't just only mind things of the flesh. We won't be living in the flesh. We're not debtors to the flesh. We don't owe it anything. Because God has given us His Spirit and He witnesses in us that we're His children. That is the most natural thing for us to look up into heaven and say, Father. It's what Jesus taught us, it's what He's worked in us supernaturally. And I know that if I'm his child, I'm brought not only into that family relationship of eternal love, but I'm brought into everything that goes with it. He has made an eternal covenant with us. We get married, we make a covenant with the person. Everything I got, I'm going to love you with. I marry my wife, everything I have, I'm going to love you My tens and tens of dollars, my apartment... (laughs) Right? Like, everything I got, it's yours. And that's, that's wonderful. God bless her. She hangs with me. But the reality is, God has brought us into an eternal covenant. And he's like, everything I got, I love you with. And you know what I got? Everything. <laughs> it's all mine. The whole earth and all the fullness thereof. And you're an inheritor of that. And because you're my son or daughter, it's going to look like something here while you're on earth. But if you suffer jointly, you'll be glorified together. And God never leaves us just to the suffering. I think that's important. He acknowledges it because he knew we were going to face it in life. I love it that he calls the Holy Spirit our helper and our comforter because he knew we were going to need a lot of help and comfort, right? He He's a good father. He knows what we need. But he challenges the mindset of the person that would walk through this life trying to escape suffering and ignoring what their true inheritance is. And, again, I just think, to finish, it's important to say all these things are still in the context of Our sanctification without these things in our mind that I'm his son that I'm his daughter that he has called me to face a certain amount of difficulty because what he's ultimately called me to in Christ in my eternal inheritance if I don't have those things as a part of my thinking then I will not be able to correctly live the type of sanctified life he wants me to because they're the balances that go on the other side of the scale And they're what the Holy Spirit is trying to make real and deeper and more weighty in my heart and in my life. So let's stand. We're going to pray. Can't rush into the next section. There's too many good things there. Heavenly Father, you are good and we thank you that you have given us the authority to be the children of God. Never could have done it on our own. It's not related to any of our own works. We haven't purchased an inheritance with our own merit. But you, in your grace, have called us into something remarkable. You've gifted us something we could have never even dreamed to ask of you. And Lord, I just pray that you would make these things more real in our hearts and lives. Lord, I pray for anybody here particularly tonight that needs to be reminded that they're your son or daughter, that you would do that good work and give them that witness through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray For anybody who might be distant from you, your son or daughter that hasn't been to your house for quite a while or has been distant relationally, that, Lord, they would just turn back to you and that they would know, Lord, your love and your care for them, that you want to be their father and you've made that happen in your own goodness and grace. So we just put ourselves before you. We know just entrusting ourselves into your hand is what's best. You're the good physician. You know perfectly how to prescribe what we need in each of our hearts and lives. So we give you our thanks and our praise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.